is a message for you to receive on this October 4th. In the late 1930s, the Association of Public Safety Communications Officials International created a system of oral brevity codes to standardize radio communications between officers in the field. The usage of the word 10 before a second number gave enough time for early radio microphones to transmit a clear signal of that more important second number. These 10 codes were phased out in the 2000s in favor of plain speech. 10-4? Somehow, that's relevant to Charlottesville community engagement. I'm Sean Tubbs, two syllables of pure brevity. On today's show, another round of rezoning applications has been made in Albemarle, including a request for a 500-unit development in Hollymead, as well as an amendment to a previous rezoning just across the street. Charlottesville City Council holds the first of three work sessions on the city's development code and discusses community design, the definition of house-sized, and commercial uses in residential neighborhoods. In today's first subscriber-supported shout-out, we are now in the middle of WTJU's Jazz Marathon, a time when the airwaves carry a full week of round-the-clock jazz and blues specials. This is a great time to support the station with a donation to keep a platform for living and breathing jazz. WTJU's Jazz Marathon celebrates our local music scene every weeknight at 8 p.m. with five live jazz and blues performances, and there's three more left. They are the Charles Owens Trio tonight, Baby Joe's Boogie Band on Thursday, and the Tina Hashemi Quartet on Friday. To learn more about what's playing when, visit WTJU.net for a schedule and details about this event, and to learn more about what your donation might yield. Thanks to WTJU for all that jazz. There's planning, and then there's planning. This afternoon, Albemarle County's Community Development Department sent out a list of the latest round of applications for rezoning and special use permits. Comments for all of these are due back to each applicant by November 20th. In one of them, more homes are planned for the Hollymead area. Dominion Realty Partners and the Stony Point Development Group have filed a rezoning for eight parcels totaling 30.821 acres from Residential 1 to planned residential development. The property for the Holly Hills neighborhood is located at the southeast corner of US 29 and South Hollymead Drive. Here's a section from the memo. A maximum of 500 dwelling units is proposed at a gross density of approximately 16 dwelling units per acre and a net density of approximately 24 dwelling units per acre. The dwelling units are proposed to be a mixture of single-family attached units and multi-family units. The properties are designated as urban density residential in the comprehensive plan. The applicant's narrative indicates that they have met with representatives from Forest Lakes and Hollymead and may change the application accordingly. In another residential development across the street, Riverbend Development is working with the owners of a recently rezoned property on an amendment to change the allowed housing types. The RST residence project was approved by the Board of Supervisors in September of 2021 on a 5-to-1 vote. Here's a section from the new rezoning narrative. The concept plan layout for the Archer North application includes a portion of the previously zoned land, and more specifically, 
1.2 acres of land, 222 proposed units with 15% of the total units as affordable. Portions of the RST zoning on the eastern side of the property and adjacent to Forest Lakes will remain as zoned in ZMA 20200007. At the time of the rezoning, the Forest Lakes Neighborhood Association mounted significant opposition to the project during a public hearing conducted in the Zoom era. Go back and take a listen to that if you want to see how it went. It was quite masterful. There's a link in the newsletter. In the other two items, the owners of 4102 Dickerson Road seek a rezoning of 2.22 acres from rural areas to light industrial to allow for the construction of a 50 feet by 50 feet warehouse. And finally, Haley, Chisholm, and Morris contractors seek a rezoning and special use permit for an existing storage yard on Earliesville Road to become compliant. One might argue that this podcast might be suffering from a decision to relentlessly go through as much of the deliberations the Charlottesville Planning Commission and Charlottesville City Council have been having on the development code. I've made the choice to prioritize this work because I believe many people will be looking back at this time in the future, no matter what happens. There's been very little in-depth coverage, and I have pledged to fill the gap as best I can. This is a publication about nuance. Last night, Charlottesville City Council held their second deliberations on the code, and there was no agenda made in advance that I'm aware of. Their first meeting was on September 27th. Here is Charlottesville Mayor Lloyd Snook from that meeting. It's just an opportunity for us to talk, really for the first time that we've ever had, to talk about the the zoning rewrite process. Snook said this meeting was a chance for the five councillors to review material that the Planning Commission has been working on for years. Council adopted the Affordable Housing Plan in March of 2021 and the Comprehensive Plan in November 2022. These are the first two of three components in the Seville Plans Together initiative, which dates back to early 2020. The Comprehensive Plan and its future land use map directed staff of both Charlottesville government and the firm Code Studio to draft a zoning code that will significantly increase the amount of residential density. Snook said the first work session gave a chance to review some of Council's expectations. In some ways, some of the basic assumptions that we thought we had going in two years ago, I think in many ways we've kind of drawn back from and we have to to revisit. A night before Council took a step back, five of the six members of the Planning Commission focused in on the zoning with specific suggestions. That's a topic in the October 3rd edition of the newsletter if you want to go back and read. If not, that's a 10-3 for you. They went through in some, in some areas uh, with great detail and great attention to detail in a way that I, for one, greatly appreciated because it is good to know that intelligent people are looking at it so carefully. Snook added that the city council will not be conducting as thorough a review. Instead, they will hold three meetings in total to provide their feedback on what Neighborhood Development Services Director James Fries called theory-level issues. Uh, The intent of the proposed development code is, of course, to implement the comprehensive plan, and the presentation and discussion this evening will focus on how the proposed zoning addresses the community design objectives of the comprehensive plan. 
Fries said one of the main objectives of the comprehensive plan is to address racial equity in the city's land use decisions by creating more places for people to live and to require that some new units be kept below market rate. Um, so as is proposed today and as was proposed in the comprehensive plan and the land use map, we're allowing small multifamily from three units up to a small, you know, uh, up to eight units and townhouses to be basically built everywhere within the city. Even more density would be intended in areas around schools, parks, and along transit lines. We've also opened opportunities for a greater range of entrepreneurial activities so that starting a business doesn't have to mean obtaining a separate location from one's home. Fries said the city would have a higher responsibility to regulate how this development will occur. Christy Dodson, with the firm Code Studio, went through some of those planning goals in more detail. To kick off her presentation, she referenced a white paper on the concept of zoning buffers, written in early 22 by Shane Phillips of the University of California at Los Angeles's Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies. Um, And essentially what it describes um, is looking at some research on the gap between a city's population, the estimated zoning capacity, that's really what they're calling the zoning buffer, and the impacts that that has on affordability um, in the long term. Dodson said one takeaway from the study is that modest upzonings allow for wealth to be generated by existing property owners by keeping inventories lower. Whereas a broader community-wide approach, um, this study found leads to better outcomes for housing affordability in the long term. Dodson didn't provide any examples, and the white paper itself makes references to Los Angeles and Minneapolis. Fries said if fewer areas are upzoned, there's less competition. Whereas a broader-based rezoning means that if I am uh, a developer looking for a piece of property, I have, I have choices. Snook asked what cities are comparable in size to Charlottesville that have conducted a similar rezoning. Minneapolis is about 59 square miles compared to about 10 square miles for Charlottesville. City Councilor Michael Payne had one example from the state of Washington. One example is Walla Walla. They're about our population and size, and I think they did something similar to our changes for RA and RB, but they didn't do anything equivalent to like our mixed-use commercial corridors, but I think they're about 40,000 people with less than 10 square miles. The U.S. Census estimated a count of 34,060 people on April 1st, 2020 for the city of Walla Walla, which is also the county seat of Walla Walla County. That city is 13.88 square miles, according to Wikipedia. The American Planning Association profiled that 2018 reform in an article last September. If you want to learn more, there's a link in the newsletter. Fries said upzonings are taking place more often at the state level in places like California, Montana, Vermont, and Oregon. A lot of the action has moved to a statewide level, is really the answer there, because of the politics because it's perceived as being a more readily doable at a, as, as a political matter at the statewide level. Before we get into the local, let's have a quick break before the rest of the newsletter. You're listening to Charlottesville Community Engagement, and in today's second shout-out, are you interested in a climate-friendly, family-friendly way to replace short car rides? Have you heard about e-bikes? Wondering what kind might be right for you? Join Livable Seville on Sunday, October 8th from 2 to 4 p.m. at Tonsler Park in Charlottesville. For a fun afternoon with lots of e-bike owners you can talk to and several types of e-bikes you can take short test rides. 
Everyone is invited to their e-bike demo day. Registration is recommended. To learn more, please visit livableseaville.org. You are listening to Charlottesville Community Engagement, and we're right in the middle of a quick summary of Charlottesville City Council's September 27th discussion on the zoning code. It's the first of three. Closer to home in Charlottesville, Christy Dodson of the firm Code Studio said there is a comprehensive plan strategy to zone at a human scale. Human scale neighborhoods, they have characteristics like um, they're comfortable and safe for a lot of different modes of travel. So whether you're driving, you're riding transit, you're taking a bike or other micro mobility, you're walking, um, and really any age of or any ability, you know, that, that's a, you have safe options um, for everybody. And it's inclusive and accessible to diverse community members, and that's diverse in every sense of the word. Dodson said that includes allowing spaces for people to do more than just live. These principles were applied to the future land use map. That's why the draft zoning code and its use table allow for limited commercial space across the entire city. Retail, neighborhood restaurants, um, even office space, things like that. Dodson said this just brings back the way buildings were built until the mid-20th century, and she showed several examples of buildings from Charlottesville's history. The draft code also puts a greater emphasis on the first few feet of a property to encourage streetscapes for pedestrians. Snook noted that the city has intentionally not allowed commercial businesses in residential areas. He asked other councillors if they were comfortable making the change. Here's Michael Payne. Definitely comfortable with it and more uncomfortable with having a zoning code that says the government is telling you it is absolutely illegal and there is no mechanism by which you could ever open a business. Um, and how we currently have it with the special use permit process, I think, will give us a little bit of ability to kind of evaluate what that's really looking at in practice. Councillor Brian Pinkston also supported the change philosophically. I would love for our city in 20 years to be the kind of place where those sorts of uh, uh, enterprises could flourish. However, Pinkston said he could delay adding commercial uses for five years while the community gets used to all of the other elements of the new zoning code. He also said he would be comfortable restricting the size to less than 4,000 square feet and require that the commercial business owner lives on site. Vice Mayor Juan Diego Wade said he supported the idea of neighborhood stores but suggested some of the clientele might not be local. How do you keep that store from, you know, for someone that's heading out to town, that they want to swing by there to, to get something. How do you handle that, that parking? In the draft code, you would need a special use permit for most commercial uses in residential neighborhoods. Wade and Payne both said they would like to proceed with that approach. However, Snook said he is concerned about the special use permit process because of the amount of time it would take. If, the, you know, if you're talking about some refugee family wanting to create a, a restaurant on their first floor, that ain't going to happen. It is not going to happen with a special use permit. Snook also repeated a concern he's expressed before about how the city would ration the permits to prevent residential neighborhoods from being converted fully to commercial. A concern is that denials by council might be subjected to legal challenges. 
Council discussed that additional traffic could be used as a reason to deny if public health and safety concerns were raised. Councillor Leah Perrier said enabling the special use permit process for neighborhood commercial would allow for would-be business owners to do their due diligence. It allows people to make a decision. If I want to convert my basement to be the neighborhood bakery, and I'm not a baker, so don't y'all go there, but if I wanted to do that, I would have an opportunity to think it through and do what I needed to do as it relates to the business plan and the this, that, and the third. Pinkston asked fellow councillors if they have a concern with allowing lodging in Residential B and Residential C. This is slightly different from the homestay issue. I, get, I, I personally I have no philosophical problems with that. I will say that if we're trying to create, um, the goal of this is to create more housing for people to live in. I wonder if that cuts against it in some way, but maybe the market will sort that out for us. I, I don't know. Payne said he is concerned about that use taking up existing housing stock. Snook said it's a concern in the current market. A consensus was reached to not move forward with that use at this time. After Dodson's presentation, Vice Mayor Juan Diego Wade said he has received many emails from people concerned that the city's infrastructure will not be able to support such a large upzoning. So I just want to know, um, you know, about the the pace of the infrastructure. Um, because I, I know that we can require some improvements. I just want to know, you know how that turned to work. Fries said there was a memo that would explain further and that the city doesn't expect a huge building boom. The rate of change we're anticipating is, is incremental over time. This isn't, we, this isn't, I, I, you know, I want to emphasize the zoning ordinance is not a development plan. It's a body of regulations. Fries said the city is working to improve its transportation system and the water and sewer infrastructure. He said site plan review of individual projects will measure capacity, but will also require developers to build part of the future. Building the zoning ordinance is a requirement that you upgrade your streetscape when you when you add in a new building, um, so that we're we're ensuring that that that. Everything we've done to require that building to be uh, community-oriented and wa- and contributing towards walkability and pedestrian safety yeah. carries over to the street in front of it. Council also discussed requirements for transitions between different zoning districts. At another point, they talked about the notion that buildings in residential A and residential B districts were supposed to be house-scaled. Snook said he felt what could be permitted might not be consistent with that word when you look at the charts. It seems to me that we could easily have six units of apartments, uh, and if each one is going to be 1,500 square feet, we've got a 9,000 square foot building, and as I look at the various other constraints and lot sizes and and coverage areas and so on, that uh, all seems to me to be entirely possible. Uh, I'm just wondering, did we give up on the idea of house-sized buildings in RA? Snook referenced an abandoned building on Booker Street in the Rose Hill neighborhood that was built in the mid-2010s with over three levels with at least 2,000 square feet each. Developer Richard Spurzum sought a rezoning to bring this structure into compliance with the zoning code in July 2016, as you can read in an uncategorized story on Charlottesville Tomorrow. Spurzum's request was denied, and here's what councillors currently think. It's an eyesore. It's an eyesore, and it's, it's the example that people use of, I don't want that in my neighborhood. 
Payne stated that in the draft development code, RA would only allow two and a half stories. He also said the word house scale is subjective. So when I look at these heights and widths, um, to me, it completely matches a neighborhood human house scale in terms of the existing pattern within neighborhoods of some townhomes, smaller apartment complexes that are mixed in with homes. And I can think of areas in my neighborhood where I live, I walk by every day, as well as canvassing throughout the city where that pattern of development is isolated but exists. And I walk by it and it feels completely house scale. The future land use map actually used the highs house-sized to refer to structures that could be built in the general residential and medium-intensity residential areas. Fries gave his interpretation. My understanding of, of the house-scale statement was kind of as it's being articulated here as, as house-scale from the street as viewed from the public realm. That new infill development fits in with the, with the streetscape, with the image of what we're seeing. I think necessarily in order to accommodate a certain number of units, you're going to go back into the lot. But what we've, what we've focused a lot on is controlling that, that, that scale as, it, as, as the neighborhood presents, as the street unfolds to the person on the street. Councilors debated different positions in different scenarios. Wade said he supported the residential density to address the need for deeply affordable housing, as well as those for slightly higher incomes. Lee and I can attest to this being on his school board for 16 years is that there is a lack of um, that, that middle income, um, that missing middle that we talked about, and teachers just could not afford it. And that's what I see in RB and our, in our RC, that we need that as well, but we also need, you know, and so, and so we need this housing types and, and quantity in all parts of the city, because I think in the past it's only been in certain ones, and we want to kind of spread the love. Wade said design will be a large part of how successful the future built environment will be. But Snook said the city will have no power to mandate that design. Who is it who said that we have to remember that the heart of the developer is, is mean and nasty? And I don't remember what <laughs> but, it says. But, but I mean, if that's what we're dealing with, let's not assume all kinds of benign thoughts. Pinkston said there would be standards to keep developers in check. The conversation went on for quite a long time longer, but I had to go ahead and print something. Council's second meeting from October 3rd is on displacement. I have that recorded, and I'll have a summary of that in a future edition of Charlottesville Community Engagement, as well as the third discussion by the Charlottesville Planning Commission. Council's final meeting will be on population estimates and the housing market. Fries said the commission is expected to make their formal recommendation and a list of changes by October 10th. We are not at that time going to do a full redraft of the document. Um, we will be, at that point, we'll be in this meeting process and in a subsequent meetings. And, and what we imagine is that part of our conversation with the council may lead to additional changes or modifications, which we will then eventually get to a point of doing a full draft at that point in time when we're ready to advertise for a public hearing. There's more to come, and I'll attempt to cover as much of it as I can, even if it is holding up coverage of other events. I think this is a pretty big deal, and I think a lot of you do too, so stay tuned, and we'll get through it.
This edition of this newsletter comes out later in the afternoon than usual, but I'm attempting to power through with these summaries as I think they're worth having for people to know what happened. Council will approve minutes that will likely be very short summaries. If I had an organization behind me, these would be posted the day after by a dedicated team. Alas, for now, it's just me here, Tile Cryer Productions, fueled by your paid subscriptions. I am fast approaching 2,500 total subscribers, a fifth of whom are paying. And for those who are new, the goal is to write about things other than zoning sometimes. But there is a gap in the market I feel I'm currently filling. With time, I will build that organization and you can help with your paid subscription. I am hopeful to hire someone soon to assist with editorial work. Stay tuned. The internet company Ting will match your first payment. Thank you to Ting. Now let's get going so we can hit number 586 as soon as possible. Thank you very much and goodbye.